Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. We believe at Mercy Commons that the steady diet of teaching comes through elders, but that there are other people in the context of our community that are gifted to teach. One of the things that we want to do is recognize gifting, and so this is why Alex is here, and she's going to be teaching this morning. All right. Good, good morning. Um, all right. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, we are going to jump into our uh, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke series, Tables and Sinners, and we're on Luke 19, 28 to 48. Um, and this is Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would you, or would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Lord, I just come before you today and ask that uh, you would move within us, that we would hang on your words. Um, that as we grapple with this text, Lord, and as we look forward to just a really important celebration in the, in the life of our, of our church and in Christianity as a whole, that um, we would just welcome you in um, to say what you want to say um, and to have your way in our lives. Amen. Um, I do have a cough drop in my mouth um, and an extra one here, but we're going to get through this. Um, so Palm Sunday, I always remember it as a time where when I was a kid and I'd be in children's church, it was like this big celebration 
and people would bring palm branches, and it was kind of cool and made no sense to me. Um, but it was like, oh, cool, yeah, this is great. Palm trees are in church. That's weird. And then the Corys brought a plant, and I was like, I'm good. I don't need that but as an illustration, but thank you. Um, but there's a couple things that are clear in this passage, and the first thing is that Christ is the long-awaited Prince of Peace. Um, peace, as a, as a word, comes up in this passage a lot. Uh, when Christ was born, he was declared, right, the Prince of Peace. And so he enters into the um, town as the returning Prince of Peace. And an interesting thing is the triumphal entry, that's kind of like a narrative structure that the people in the culture are familiar with. Um, it's a narrative structure that comes up often in literature that they would be familiar with. Um, and it's the narrative of a victorious king entering into a city after he has cleared it of the enemy. He has conquered. Um, an example of this is in 1 Maccabees. It says, on the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered the city with praise and prom palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So as Christ is entering and there's palm branches, this is what they're thinking of. A great enemy has been crushed. But then they're looking at their world and they're like, we're still under Roman rule. So what's happening here? And they, uh, in Mark, it says they cry out, Hosanna, save now. Saying to this man as he enters the city, uh, live up to that narrative that we're familiar with. Save us, drive out our enemy, free us from Roman rule. Um, so this is very much the story of a long-awaited king, but uh, we see a couple things with Christ here. And the most important is that we see that his peace, the peace he brings, is unlike anything we could ask for or imagine. And one of the ways it is unlike anything we could ask for or imagine is because it's disruptive. Um, unlike the conquering king that the people expected, Christ leads with absolute humility, disrupting their long-held expectations of what Messiah would look like. They believed he would ride in, army trailing behind him, generals at his side, sword on his hip, and he's going to drive out the Romans. He rides in on a borrowed little donkey, um, an unbroken colt, never been ridden before. It's likely to buck him off. Um, it is untrained. It is not even his own. He doesn't even have a house, let alone a palace. Um, and he takes the image of this conquering king and he turns it on his head. He isn't some unreachable, unknowable, gaudy ruler. He is the humble accessible Messiah who offers peace to everyone. Um, I was trying to think, so I, we were watching, Pat and I were watching a soccer game yesterday and somebody said, one of the announcers was like, yeah, this is in LA, we love our stars, like we love stars in LA. Um, and it's it, not night stars because we can't see them, but people, you know, like people who we look up to, people we honor. Um, we love them even more than night stars. Um, and I was thinking, like, when I tell people if I'm traveling, like, oh, I'm from California, they're like, oh, like L.A.? And I'm like, sure, from L.A. <laughs> um, 
And they go, uh, well, like, so you, you know celebrities, right? You've all heard that. And I'm like, yeah, of course I know celebrities. <laughs> um, well, one time Pat and I were in L.A. We were in a very small theater. The number of people watching the musical we were watching was probably maybe this part of the room, like this half of the room. Um, and I'm not a theater person, uh, like, a ton. You sit on both sides and the stage is in the middle. I don't know what that's called. Um, and so we're watching this musical, and then during intermission, which for years I've called halftime, um, <laughs> and Pat has corrected me over and over and over again. Uh, so we're, and during intermission, we're just walking around in this tiny theater, and this woman walks up to the, like, snack, I want to call it a snack shack, but we were dressed up and we were in a nice theater, so I don't, concession stand? Um, the cocktail bar, that's even better. This woman walks up and she's, like, super cool. She's dressed in this super cool outfit. She has this wild hair. And I turn to Pat, because I never forget a face. And I go, that's Cynthia Erivo. And if you are a theater person, uh, she won the Tony Award for The Color Purple, and then she's appeared in a bunch of movies. She was Harriet Tubman in the movie Harriet, um, and she's been nominated for Oscars since then. And I'm like, I saw her performing through my TV. I saw her. I saw her performing at the Tonys. And that was the moment I fell in love with theater. Not as much as Pat, but I was like, this is kind of cool. This is cool. And I was like, that's Cynthia Revo, Pat, Pat. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, go talk to her. And he was like, no, we're not, no. And I was like, come on. One thing you'll know about me, I have no chill. Um, I've walked in places and I'm like, Pat, I know the bartender from college. Don't worry, I'll play it cool. And I go up to her and I'm like, you're Hannah from college and you played lacrosse. And she was like, and who are you? Um, but I was like, don't worry, don't worry, I got this. So I go up to her and I go, you're Cynthia Revo. And she goes, yes, I am. <laughs> and I was like, you're the reason that I'm here tonight. I love theater because of you. Like, you stood on stage at the Tonys. You belted out your song. And it was incredible. And this is Patrick. And he loves theater. And he's, he's trying to get me to love theater. But I love theater because of you, not him. Um, so he's indebted to you, is like our whole conversation. And she goes, like, cool. Um, but she's about to leave, intermission's about to end, and she's like, you know what? You didn't tell me your name. What's your name? And I was like, oh, that doesn't matter. <laughs> and she goes, no, what's your name? Like, you told me his name, you know my name. And I had this moment, I was like, this Tony Award Oscar-nominated actress just asked my name? And it blew me away. And we have, not that I'm comparing Cynthia Revo to Jesus in any way, um, <laughs> But one thing about stars is we expect them to be otherworldly. Um, and Christ enters the city as a common man, humbled and riding on a borrowed donkey. And when he does that, he disrupts the people's narrative of what a king looks like. His peace is also disruptive um, because at a time when it would have been advantageous for him to lay low, he leads with absolute authority, disrupting a culture more concerned with religious systems than true discipleship. He enters the temple, 
and he drives out. It's the same, same verbiage used when he drives out demons. He drives out the people selling doves for the sacrifice from the temple. He drives out those who are using their religious superiority to limit the access Gentiles had to the, to the temple of God. These people, it, it's not... Um, it wasn't necessarily bad, or it was, definitely wasn't uncommon that they'd be selling doves. These, these doves were needed for the sacrifices. But what happened is they were selling them in the outer part of the temple that was reserved for the Gentiles. And by selling them there, they were limiting the Gentiles' access to being close with God. And a lot of people talk about how like Old Testament God and New Testament God are so different, um, especially seekers will say, I can't reconcile the two. What we see here is Jesus exercising that Old Testament authority. In Jeremiah 7, 5 through 11, uh, this is what the Lord God Almighty says to his people. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. And this is exactly why Christ weeps over the city. Because he's come into a city that is stuck in generational sin, where they've turned from God, and he is exercising his absolute authority when he drives them out of the temple. You see, Christ is humble, right? But he's not safe. He's not safe when it comes to sin. He's not safe when it comes to selfishness. It's like that quote from Narnia. Susan goes, Aslan is a, or the beaver, Mr. Beaver, of course, goes, Aslan's a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It was not part of God's design for the temple to be filled with merchants and for the Gentiles to not have access to his presence. It was not part of God's plan to maintain systems that violate the needy, distance the marginalized, or hinder God's heart for salvation for all. So what he does is he uses his authority to redeem broken systems, disrupt oppression, and welcome the marginalized into families. And it's through his authority that he will restore all things to his original design. The other thing we see about God's peace is that it's all-encompassing. It's disruptive, and it is all-encompassing. His kingship uh, is all-encompassing because he's more interested in making peace than keeping peace. 
Uh, Joel B. Green, he, um, well, Nick let me borrow his um, Bible commentary. He has this great quote I want to read to you. Peace in Luke has no connection to harmony with the Roman Empire or with the temple leadership, nor does it refer to subjective or individualistic tranquility. Peace, rather, is shalom. Peace and justice, the gift of God that embraces salvation for all in all of its social, material, and spiritual realities. So um, I have a picture I want to show you. Um, does anyone know what's going on in this picture? <laughs> if you follow me on Instagram, you're like, I'm peddling Beanie Babies. Um, I kind of am. I'm peddling Beanie Babies. You know, at one point, they were a great investment. Um, so this woman here is at a convention hall filled with people buying, trying to find the best Beanie Babies, the most rare Beanie Babies. This woman here, um, I got her picture online. I typed in Beanie Baby Craze, and this picture came up. This picture is of my mom. Um, this is my mom, Sherry Williamson, right over here. Selling Beanie Babies. So my mom and dad had a Beanie Baby store called Beanie Baby Boulevard uh, in Palm Desert. And I spent my childhood going to toy conventions while my parents sold Beanie Babies. I had every single Beanie Baby. You guys want a Princess Diana purple bear? I have literally 51, okay? <laughs> um, literally. Um, actually, we counted up the Beanie Babies we have currently. I have over 1,200. Um, and I know people, people are looking at Pat in complete sympathy, like, what? No, so for years, I, w I was raised uh, at, by the age of 10. My dad had passed away, and I was raised by my aunt and uncle. And what happened is all of my parents' stuff was taken to my aunt and uncle's house and put in the garage and put in the rafters. So. For probably, how old am I? 30. For 20 years, the Beanie Babies were in the rafters of my aunt and uncle's house, just sitting there. And my aunt was like, I don't want these in my house anymore. I'm going to give them away. And, I, and my siblings are like, we'll, deal, we'll do something with them. We'll figure it out. So my brother spent almost seven years of his life in prison. He just got out over summer. My siblings and I, for the first time in seven years, have spent time together to sort through Beanie Babies. <laughs> hours. We've spent hours sorting through Beanie Babies. Um, I never imagined my siblings and I. We didn't grow up together. We, we had hardly been in the same room for 20 years. We've spent weekends sorting through Beanie Babies. And when you go into my grandma's garage, she's like our Beanie Baby base. Um, I just thought of that. That's good. Um, when you go into my grandma's garage, it is like complete chaos. We took these Beanie Babies down from my aunt's rafter, transferred them to my grandma's house, unloaded them, counted them, sorted them. It looks like complete chaos. But what has happened over the last few weekends is my brother, my sister, and I, who have not been in the same room for seven years, 
have started talking about, you know, like, once we get sorted, once we get unload this stuff, what can we do with it? Um, we're going we're gonna to give anything that we can't sell to children's hospitals. We're going to donate them to uh, kids at the holidays. And we're going to take any of the money that we earn and we're going to go on a, this is what we've decided over these weekends. We're going to go on a family vacation, the three of us, with our families. We're going to take our dad's ashes and we're going to spread them in Joshua's tree one of his favorite places to go, a place we haven't been to in two decades together. And the chaos of the Beanie Baby craze has actually been a tool God has used to bring a deeper peace. It's not perfect. It's not there yet. Like David said, it's a process. But to bring a deeper peace to my siblings' relationship. We're after almost a decade, we're in the same room together talking about the future and dreams and hopes that we have. God is not interested in changing circumstances as much as he is interested in changing our orientation, the orientation of our heart. His peace is all-encompassing that way. He didn't enter the city to wage war on the Romans like people wanted. He entered the city to wage war on death itself. He's not proclaiming a change in circumstances, and Christ the Lord's clearly not interested in maintaining tranquility in the city and the status quo in the temple. He's going to make peace by waging war against the things that keep us from living a full and free life. Selfishness, division, idolatry, depression, reliance on political saviors. These are things that hinder our ability to access the full life that he offers. And when he entered the city, he waged war on those things. Because, guys, he, he won't relent. He will not relent until he digs out the roots of the things that keep us from him. And we get to live into this peace that he offers us. And one of the ways we live into this peace, we embrace this peace uh, through worship. We worship Jesus for who he is, not for who we want him to be. There's a song that's been on repeat in my head, and Pat was playing it this morning. One of the lyrics goes, wouldn't it be like you to be different than we thought, different than we want, but better? And that's the God that we worship, a God who's different than we want, but so much better. And we worship with a posture that embraces his humility and his authority. We affirm that he is ruler over everything and he is good. He's humble and he's mighty. He is compassionate and he is powerful. And he is worthy of our worship. I mean, Jesus says to the naysayers, I tell you, if these were silent, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. We are going to exist forever in God's presence, worshiping him. Revelation uh, 7, 9 through 12 says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their face before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And you see that, that image of the conquering king come full circle in Revelation. We're going to lay palm branches down on his feet with not just a posture of worship like these people had, but an orientation towards God as a humble and authoritative king. They wanted Jesus to free them from a circumstance they didn't like. When he didn't do that, a week later, they cried out, crucify him. But there will be a day where we will recognize the Lord that we serve. We will lay palm branches down at his feet, not because he was the king we wanted, but because he's the king he is, because he's good and he's powerful, because he's merciful and he's mighty. And we will fall down on our face worshiping him. And we can do that today. We have access to that today. Band, you can come up. When we worship God for who he is, we train our hearts to submit to him. And we can embrace the peace he offers by submitting to him. He's humble Lord and authoritative king. And when we don't worship him for who he is, we run the risk of turning our gaze to other kings. I know I do that. Uh, I've been sick for the last few days. On um, Friday night, I was up from 2.30 to 5.30 because I just couldn't sleep. Last night, I was up again, 1.30, and I was like, Pat, Pat, I'm just going to go sit in the shower. <laughs> He's like, okay. Um, and Pat has prayed for me, like, without ceasing. And last night, I wanted to tell him to just stop it because I'm like, God's not going to heal me before tomorrow. He doesn't want to. And I found myself getting kind of mad at him. Like, mad, not at Pat. Well, kind of mad at Pat. I'm like, stop praying, okay? But mostly mad at God. And I had this moment where I was like, so what if he doesn't heal me tomorrow? So what if I stand up here feeling sick? Does that change his goodness? Does it change his authority? No. And I had this moment where I was like, I need, I, okay. I'm going to worship God for who he is, not who I want him to be. He doesn't heal me. Okay. He's still good. He, he's still powerful. He's still gracious. The disciples praised Jesus as he entered the city, and they had a correct heart posture. But they didn't have the right orientation towards him as, as powerful king worthy of submitting to they praised Jesus because they thought he would save them out of a certain circumstance. And when he didn't, they turned their gaze to something else. And guys, we can enter the peace that he invites us into when we continually submit to his lordship. It's both disruptive and really good. And so as the band just kind of softly plays behind me, I want to ask you a couple questions and I want to just take a moment, 30 seconds or so, just to reflect on them, okay? I want us to ask, God, 
What am I seeking comfort and security in apart from you? And can you come and disrupt that? So God, what am I seeking comfort and security in apart from you? And could you please come and disrupt that? God, in what ways am I holding on to expectations of who I want you to be that are not helpful, that are not accurate? In what ways am I holding on to expectations of who I want you to be that are not helpful or accurate? In short, this morning, guys, I invite you to ask God, break into my life as both a humble and authoritative king and have your way with me. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.